This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 11, bonus episode 2. This is Writing Excuses, Horrifying the Children with Darren Shan. Fifteen minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Dan. I'm Steve. And we have Darren Shan here with us at the World Horror Convention. Darren, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I write for adults, but primarily I write for young adults. Um, I've published close to 50 books now. And the vast majority of those have been for a YA audience. Fifty, five, zero. Five, zero. I'm not sure the exact number, but it's close to 50. I, um, I'm very bad at keeping... <laughs> I, I look forward to the day when details. I can't remember how many books You've reached published. the point where you just have to use the nearest round number. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. No, I, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Um, when I first started writing young adult horror, uh, way back in the kind of mid-2000s, Cirque du Freak is the book that uh, that my friend handed me and said, "This is what you got to aim for. This is what is this is what's out there." And and loved it, and it's great. So, oh, thank you very much. So wonderful to have you on the show. Um, we would like to talk with you today about writing horror for children, for young adults, and specifically, you know, what, what how is that different than writing horror for adults? Uh, so I'm going to start with the obvious question that I know a lot of our listeners are thinking. Uh, is there anything you can't do when you're writing horror for children? Um, on the one hand, no. There are lines you have to be careful with. But I think each writer needs to set those lines for themselves. The big no-no I found in my dealings with my editors and my publishers is sex. You can be as violent as you want. I've got a book called Lord Loss, and in chapter two, a boy walks into a bedroom, his father's hanging upside down from a ceiling, his head's chopped off, his mother's ripped to pieces... Um, his sister's been cut in two, and the demon's behind her back, moving her around like a hand puppet. And that was all acceptable. <laughs> in my vampire series, so The Freak, uh, there was a, at one point, there's this process that vampires go through, which I had called vampuberty. And my publisher said, no, you cannot say vampuberty. We must not mention anything that has any slight sexual connota- connotation whatsoever. It was just because their voices changed, though, right? <laughs> That was part of it. They did. Um, they got very hairy very quickly. It was like a speeded up uh, puberty. It all happened within the space wow. of a few weeks. And so, and your publisher said that that was actually across the line. In in the publishers, yes. Now, the publisher I deal with mostly is in the UK, so things might be different here in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in, no, the, if, in if, the UK, they don't talk about sex. My editor said to me one day when I was sort of challenging about this, she said, "Teenage boys don't want to talk about sex or read about sex." <laughs> I just figured there's some fights uh, you just can't get involved yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Um, if, I think if, it might be more accurate to say that the people buying books for mm. their the young adult boys. children, yeah. their teenage boys, would prefer that the sex wasn't in there, but that's yeah. a completely different argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now, on the other hand, you know, back when somebody handed me Cirque du Freak, the same person also handed me Tithe by Holly Black, which does deal very frankly with sex as, as a YA, I guess it was dark fantasy in, instead of horror, if, you know, if that line matters. And, and so, like you said in the beginning, it can be done, and every author's yep. line is going to be in a different place. Precisely, yeah. Um, I'm sort of, my books are sold as horror books for boys. 
Mm-hmm. It's yeah. I tell my publishers, I've been telling them now for 15 years, actually, yeah, at least half my audience are, are girls. When I go to events, when I tour, you know, often it's more girls than boys turning up. Mm-hmm. But the sort of, um, the way I'm sold is that teenage boys are reluctant readers and Darren Chan books can reach teenage boys and so they aim them at the teenage boys. And so there are areas where I may be constrained where other authors wouldn't have the same constraints. That's interesting. interesting. Okay. Um, so so uh, let's let's talk a little bit more then about about this. What what are some of the things that you see in in horror that I mean that you love? What brought you to horror and what made you want to tell scary? What made you want to horrify children? Well, I, as a child, I loved being horrified. Uh, I can remember I saw my first Dracula film when I was five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was one of the nineteen seventies Dracula films, and I just remember him crawling across the wall of this spooky old castle and coming out of a coffin, and I loved it. Yeah. I just immediately fell in love with vampires and then I went on to other horror films and then books when I was a, a bit older. I've just loved being scared. I used to lie in bed at night, which is when I was five or six, thinking of scary things to try to give myself nightmares. So <laughs> I, I lived in a small little apartment in London and um, I'd think of vampires attacking the apartment and I'd play out different scenarios. Of, sometimes I'd fight them off and be a hero and save my family. Other times, my parents and little brother would be killed by them, but I'd survive because I'd have a cross by my bedside cabinet. Um, sometimes I'd think about what it'd be like <laughs> if I became a vampire, which 20 years later, I think, became the mm-hmm. genesis for Certain Freak. Okay. But I loved fictional scares. I didn't like being scared in real life. I always think it's important to draw a line between fictional horror and real horror. If you're being chased down an alley late at night or being stalked down an alley, there's nothing entertaining about that. Yeah. If you're watching it in a film or reading about it in a book... And it's a very different experience. The best analogy I can make is that it's like a roller coaster ride. You, tra- exactly. you strap yourself in, you are safe. You believe it's real, you suspend your sense of belief, you enter the world of a book, you try to believe that this can be happening, but you know it can't. And mm-hmm. if it's a book, if you get too freaked out, you just close the cover. If it's a film, you can hit pause. You know, you, we go into these things because we love them. And I've always loved horror. I've loved that safe scares. You know, I yeah. love roller coaster rides. And, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons that horror has always been so popular with children is because it's safe scares. It's an opportunity in a safe environment to deal with the kinds of emotions and the kinds of catharsis and the kinds of, you know, danger and scary and all this stuff that they might very well come across in real life at some point. You De- know, definitely. E- um, not necessarily being chased through an alley, although that certainly happens, but issues of abandonment and of isolation and of loss and all of these things. And horror is a way and has been for thousands of years that children kind of the training wheel version of those emotions and those experiences. Absolutely. 100%. Um, going back to that scene in Lord Loss, chapter two, that I was talking about where the boy mm-hmm. walks into the bedroom to find his family ripped apart by demons. Now that's not going to happen to any teenagers yeah. in real life. Well, well, you never say never. <laughs> Leave out the word demon. <laughs> And, it, and, it, and that's it what does. I was going to say. Yeah. Um, what I was doing with that book, it's not about the gore. That book is about a boy whose life descends into chaos and how he finds the strength and courage within himself to piece his life back together and start over anew. And what it's saying to youngsters, you know, if your mum dies of cancer, if your dad gets killed in a road accident, it's going to be terrible. It's going to have this huge impact on your life, but you can get through this. I think it's important for children to experience horror in fiction so they can be thinking about it and preparing for it for when it strikes us in real life. Because we're all being stalked by the Grim Reaper. We're all going to die. We're all going to experience death. And there's nothing overtly scary about that if we're prepared for it. It's sad, but we can deal with it. And mm-hmm. I think horror in fiction 
is a way of preparing us for that. Kind of reminds me of that, that quote from Stephen King, where he says that horror is just a rehearsal, a rehearsal for death, right? Yeah, and we use monsters, we use vampires, we use the supernatural to help us think about these horrendous things mm-hmm. without thinking about them directly. It's a way of getting into that zone without being too morbid. I love the, the philosophical is the wrong word, but I, I love this, this take that you have on it. It's the first time I've heard it articulated in this way. Uh, I mean, I've heard Stephen King's quote, but that yeah. always just sounded no, almost pithy but, and silly. But, but this, in this context, doesn't it sound so much better? Yes. It's thank you for making Stephen King sound good. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I hope I'm we don't have to help him out. He needs a bit of <laughs> he needs, assistance. Um, the, the, the question, sorry, the, the question that I have is that, you know, moving from this, this existential sense of why the horror is important down to the nuts and bolts of, what am I going to do in order to make the young reader of this book feel this emotion? What am I going to do in order to release neurochemicals in this child's brain uh, and then force them to cope with it? How do you put those words on the page? How do you figure out which ones they are? I mean, it's a very organic process. It's a real gut instinct. Um, I find with writing, I've learned a lot over the you know, 25 years or so that I've been writing full time but a lot of it's subconscious. Um, I'm a great believer in learning by doing. You know, I, when I'm t- talking to young writers, I always say, right, that's the most important thing. You know, all the advice in the world will do you no good unless you sit down and write. You have to write bad stories, you have to make mistakes, you learn from those, you improve, you get a bit better. So, um, but yeah, for me, it's, um, I like fast-paced books. Most of my books t- uh, tend to be written in the first person. It wasn't something I set out deliberately to do, but I found when I started telling these stories, that if I wrote in the first person, it allowed me as a writer to slip more easily into that world. And I think it allows young readers as well. If There's a little re- more immediacy. It, it makes it I because I think every reader tries to put themselves into a book, particularly, I think, children and teenagers. We've got to remember, most children are, who are reading my book show, we're talking about early teenagers, it's not that, that long ago they believe in Santa Claus and fair, tooth fairy and things like this, whatever their, you know, um, supernatural beliefs might be as children, you know, they believe firmly that, you know, well, when I grew up in a Christian household, you know, Santa Claus came every year. And that was it. And I believe firmly. I can remember the day I found out Santa wasn't real. Wait, what? I wept for an hour. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Oh, we, we haven't told Steve yet. Uh, don't worry, Steve. I'll, um, I'll do the old men in black trick on you at the end of this. And so oh. <laughs> we'll get that out. It's the only thing but, keeping um, me so, yeah, together. I think children are able to suspend belief more because they live in this realm where anything is possible. And it's a great, exciting time of our lives. Um, it's also the most terrible time of our lives. You know, I remember my teenage years being incredible highs and incredible lows. You know, if someone makes fun of the T-shirt you're wearing, you think the world has fallen down. You well, know, that's just van puberty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, let, let's, let's take a break very quickly um, for our book of the week. And we would like you to tell us about... Uh, which one did we want to hear about? Yeah, well, which one did you want to recommend? Finn Executioner. Okay. Yes. Tell us about that one. Uh, the Finn Executioner is a one-off book which I would pick as my favourite out of all my books. It's about a young boy whose dream in life is to chop off heads for a living when he grows up. He lives in a society <laughs> where every crime is punishable with execution. So even if you steal or a cot line, your head is chopped off and executioners are these celebrity figures and he wants to be one of them, but he's a very thin, scrawny boy so he sets off on a big epic quest to try to gain magical powers, which will allow him to become the Finn Executioner. 
which everyone can relate to, which is what I love about it. Uh, that's great. And people can find that book everywhere, I assume, It's right? in print, so yeah, it's a hardback, paperback, online, it's a Kindle. Online. E-book, audio book? No audio book. No audio? No okay. audio. But every other format, people can find The Thin Executioner by Darren Shan. Awesome. All right. So I want, I want to ask uh, some, some kind of more detailed questions here. So what we've covered so far, I think, is if you want to write horror for children, first of all, it helps to really love horror. It, loves to be, it, it helps to love being scared, to love scaring people. Beyond that, what's the first bit of advice you would give to someone sitting down to write a young adult horror? Well, when I'm writing, I never think of an audience. The way for, for when I'm writing for young readers, I try to remember what I was like as a teenager. Mm-hmm. The sort of movies I liked watching, the sort of books I liked reading, what was going on in my life at the time. I try to make it as personal as I can. Even though I'm writing about vampires, demons, zombies, I'm really writing about me and my experiences of the world, the questions I'm asking. So I put myself into the shoes of the, the character. And I, you know, I don't worry about what's hot in the market at the moment. Mm-hmm. I just think... What would have stoked my imagination? And, and so when, when you start a new story or a new book, what typically comes first for you? Is it the character and what is he afraid of? Okay, then I'll come up with a monster that matches. Or is it, I've got this great idea for a monster or for a scene that's terrifying. Where do you tend to start? Or is it all of the above? It will. I never try to fit characters to monsters or anything. I don't sit there thinking, all right, I've written vampires. What am I going to do next? Um, I just go with stories that appeal to me. The ideas come from all over the place. Mm-hmm. The idea of a certain freak, I was sitting in a car one day, babysitting a young cousin who was asleep in the back seat, and I had this idea of a boy who meets a vampire at a circus and reluctantly becomes his assistant. The ideas I cannot control. What I do control is the developing of the ideas, and I do that by asking questions. An idea is like a clue. Uh, it's something you stumble upon. It's not something mm-hmm. you can make yourself have. You know, you might see something. I was walking across a bridge in London a few years ago and this girl was coming towards me, pulling a series of strange faces. And I've no idea why she was doing it, but it set my brain worried. Um, why would she be doing that? And it led me to write what will hopefully be our next series after Zombie. Cool. So um, it's, it's about question work. It's like detective work. You ask questions. So sort of freak, okay. I knew it was just, there was going to be a boy who meets a vampire at a circus and becomes his assistant. So I started asking questions like, how does the boy know it's a vampire? Why does the vampire want to blood the boy? Why does the boy agree to be blooded? And by asking these questions, I began to unravel answers, which led me to more questions and more answers. And a certain freak that happened very quickly, literally in the space of three or four days. There are other books I've worked on, and it's been three or four years that I've been playing around with ideas, trying to fathom out what the story is to go with them. I never know anything about the characters until I start writing. The characters are always a surprise to me. I discover those through the writing process. I'll have an idea that one, yeah, I need a character to be a villain, so this character's probably going to play that role, but I won't know exactly how villainous he's, he's going to be or what way he's going to speak until I actually start writing him. And the characters just grow organically out of storytelling. That's, that's fascinating to me um, because I, I outline very extensively before I start, and that includes often very detailed character sketches and even free writes to get to know the character's voice before I start the book. How much prep work do you put in? If you're essentially, it sounds like, free writing the characters, how much of the plot do you know beforehand? I usually know most of the plot. Sometimes I will know it intimately. Uh, with my Demon Arter books, most of those, I bro- I, when I was doing my plot notes, I broke them down to chapter headings, and mm-hmm. I knew pretty much what was going to happen in each chapter. There was always the room to change along the way. If I was halfway through a book and I had an idea that led me in a different direction, 
you know, I had the freedom to, to do that. But I had very, very clear plots. And other times of Circuit Freak, it was half a sheet of A4 paper. I just scribbled down, very basic plot, and I went from there. Usually it's somewhere between those two extremes. Mm-hmm. I always like to have a guideline with the plot. I don't write like Stephen King, where he says he, he begins a book, he doesn't know where he's going. Yeah. Um, I can't write that way. Uh, I like to have a guideline, and I might riff on it greatly as I go along. Mm-hmm. You know, I might go off in different directions, and stories will hopefully surprise me as I'm going along, and I'll find out new things which I didn't know in the beginning. But I like to have that through line. I think the more work you can do in advance on your plot notes, the easier it is to write. When I go along, I'll, in my notes, I like to tick off each chapter as, I've, as I write it, and mm-hmm. it gives me a sense of making progress. A lot of writing is about mental confidence. Yeah. It's about believing you're making progress and going to do it. If you're working on a big two, three, four hundred page book, you're halfway through that and it's easy to get lost. In the middle of a book is always the hard part. Um, like, I'm sure most writers will start out with failed books. They'll start writing, you know, great book, they'll get two or three chapters in, lose interest. They'll know what the ending's going to be, they'll have a great ending in mind, but that mm-hmm. big, long middle stretch, it's, um, it's, it can be like finding your way through a desert. Yeah. It can be a hard slog. And I find having notes there, so you, at least you can see as you're going along, ticking off the notes, that you're making progress. You don't feel like you're never going to get to the you end. Put some landmarks in the Sahara <laughs> so that you can... Uh, Absolutely, you yeah. Can, you can it's, meander across it. Um, what is... I love asking this question. Uh, what is your favorite triumph in terms of having a writing problem, having... Maybe it was with a story where you were puzzled, you were stuck, and then you did something new. What is, what is your favorite moment where that's happened? It's with the Demonata series. Okay. The Demonata series is 10 books, which link together very intricately. And the storyline jumps backwards and forwards in time. And it, it's, it always sounds very complicated when I talk about it. It's a very, very simple series to read. But the structure is very, very complex. And I didn't figure out the structure until I was at book six. Uh, I work in an unusual way. I will spend between two and three years working on any one book, but I will juggle lots of different books around over that two or three year period. So um, I'll, they'll all be at different phases. So I'll do a first draft of a book. I'll leave it for maybe five, six months. I'll go and edit, you know, another two, three, four books. I'll return to that book, do a rewrite, edit some more, maybe do a, a first draft of another book, come back to it. I jump around. It's, it's, it's a juggling wow. process. And it's just, it's just the way my brain works. If you were to ask me now where I am, in the process of all the different books, I wouldn't better tell you. But when I sit down to my computer and I've got the Word files on the screen, I just click, I click into it. Something in my brain clicks in. Yeah. And I'm, okay, I'm at draft five of this book. I'm at draft seven of that book. Um, there have been occasions when I've forgotten I've done a draft and I've written to my <laughs> editor saying, uh, when are you going to send me the, um, your feedback on the latest draft? And she'll say, I did that a few months ago and you, you sent me a whole a new draft through. And I go, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, my, my brain... T- keeps track of those things. Um, when I'm not writing, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about writing. Um, I sort of tune out. I go away. And it's, again, it's just the way my brain works. I let it go and it's just a big machine, work, computer working away in the background. Uh, but yeah, my greatest triumph was when I got to book six of that series. So I wrote the first book. Um, the second book I wrote ended up being the fourth book in the series. Um, the next two I wrote were books five and six. Then I wrote what became book three. And it was finally the sixth book that I wrote was when I figured out how I was going to make all these ideas tie together and make them work. And that ended up being the second book. Um, and it's, so it was, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a series I look back on. Don't try this at home, kids. Absolutely not. Well, I didn't know I was trying it. And I was halfway through and I, I thought, this isn't going to work as a series. I'm just going to have to sort of 
cut out a couple of the books, make it all you know, well, a see, simpler story. That's the worst kind of problem to have, and it's the one that we most commonly have, which is when you don't know that it's a problem until yep. you are too far in to ignore it. Yeah. You know, this wasn't something you, you planned for. It was something that you... Well, and, and we talked about, Darren, you and I talked a little bit about this the other day when you said that in order to combat a lot of this stuff, you tend to write like the whole series as much in advance as possible so that when you have issues later on, you can go and, and, and address them in earlier versions of the books. Well, that, that's the advantage of the way I write. Because I start, because I'll spend at least two or three years working on each yeah. book, but juggle lots of them around, it means by the time that first book of a series is due to be published, I'll be very far advanced. With yeah. Cert Freak, I was up to book nine when the first book came out. With Demonata, I had the first six written um, by the time book one came out. With Zombie, I actually had written all 12 before the first book was published. Oh, my goodness. Because the reason I did that was because Zombie was released uh, most of the series at a rate one every three months. Uh, I wrote it like the old serials, like Charles Dickens used to write. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was an experiment. I wanted to see, well, if I tell this story using short books, every book ended in a cliffhanger. Can I create this real sense a different sense of anticipation mm-hmm. among my readership. And so it was a big, big experimental series. So I knew I had to have it, you know, at least the first draft written of the last one. And that worked the well. The serial worked well with the, the young readers, the young adults. It worked well for the readers. Uh, it didn't work too well for uh, the publishing industry. And um, booksellers are just not set up these days to release a new book every three months. Um, but yeah, the feedback we were getting was it was, just, it was getting too confusing for them. The books coming out too quickly. Um, they were having, you know, they, they couldn't make it a book, in a, book in a month, issues, every three yeah. months. Yeah, it was seen as being given favoritism to yeah. one author over others. So it's probably not something I'd do again. But um, for those who were there with the story from the beginning, it did work in a really, really intriguing way for them. I've got, I've got probably the best feedback I've ever had of any of my series with Zombie. And the further along it got, the better the feedback became. Did they just feel they were more invested in the series with you? They did. Well, it, because the books were out so quickly, uh-huh. it wasn't like you know, you've got a book every year. You forget a lot of things. If you've got a book every three months, it stays fresh in your mind. And the, and the fact that every book ended on a cliffhanger, they were you know, eager to get the next one. It's a bit like watching a TV show. Right. Where you've got, you know, it's not quite every week, but when you've got to have a TV show and you get a big cliffhanger, you're waiting for a week, you're on tenterhooks. It was that sort of experience I was trying to recreate. That is, that is fascinating. awesome. That is fascinating. We are a little low on time at this point. Uh, final questions for uh, Darren? Can we be best friends forever? <laughs> Until we die. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> Who's got a writing prompt for us? Uh, I got one from the crowd that says, write a story about what scared you as a child. I like that. Okay. Reach back into your memories. Try and find the repressed ones. That's tricky. Uh, but that's where the big scare is going to be. And turn that into a story. Darren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, I really, I, I really appreciated uh, how much support you've given to a great many of the things that I've believed about writing. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very nice to find out that... He makes uh, it sound so much more intelligent, too. It, it, it just means that I feel like I'm on the right path. Yes. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, fair listener, you are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. 
They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 